Hi, everyone. Welcome to our panel on Infrastructure at the Edge. I'm Spencer Kern from New Street Research. My co-moderator is Sumit Benerjee from BCG. We're thrilled to have a great collection of industry leaders on stage today. To my right is Ed Knapp, the CTO of American Tower, who's the largest independent owner of towers globally. Next to him is Zach Smith from Packet, a company building bare metal servers for uh, data center, uh, for edge data centers. Uh, to his right is Alex Marchin, the technical marketing manager for Vapor.io, a company building network in networking infrastructure for edge data centers. And lastly, we have Kevin Smithen, uh, the head of strategy for Digital Bridge, is a company that invests across the uh, entire landscape of communications infrastructure, across towers, data centers, small cells, and fiber networks. Uh, so just to kick off with a high-level question, and also allow our panelists to further explain their role in the communications infrastructure landscape, um, as you think about 5G, what demands do you think it will place on your infrastructure and how does your infrastructure need to evolve to meet those demands? Thanks, Spencer. Uh, thanks, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, obviously, 5G is the key topic of the day. And from an infrastructure company, um, we've been at it almost 25 years in terms of towers. We have many around the world. I think the fundamental towers remain as a, as a fixture in 5G, so, so that doesn't change. But also what's happening, as the previous speaker spoke about, is the architecture network's changing. And we're looking at new services and advancements that will help drive the CapEx required to build out 5G networks. And what that's going to allow us to do is push, first of all, functions that normally were centralized to decentralize those, to virtualize those, and move them to the edge. So part of this panel, too, is about um, processing and compute at the edge, but 5G will enable that as, as some of the standards have changed the way, let's say, the, the control plane and data plane uh, interact uh, as you process bits over the wireless interface. So from a digital infrastructure standpoint, towers remain. There will be different spectrum bands and different types of sites, and the services will try to move close to the edge, and part of that is because of IoT and the, the types of data processing that IoT requires as those new devices show up in mass on the network, that will drive infrastructure towards the edge. So in-building systems, uh, edge processing, and more densification, diversification of the types of communication towers and assets that are going to be in the marketplace. And then the other piece of that is obviously transport, which is interconnecting those sites, either wirelessly or through fiber. Just, just to, uh, to, to build on what you were saying there, um, I think you're right, you know, the towers pretty much stay where they are in many cases. You know, we have the whole macro versus small cell kind of discussion. Let's kind of leave that aside for the moment. But at the moment, we have, um, you know, distributed tower infrastructure from a macro cell standpoint. Um, and then at the moment, we have this regional centralized data center infrastructure that kind of supports that, runs many of the applications. Um, to me, the biggest trend and a big part of what we do at Vapor is really bringing that, essentially distributing that data center infrastructure out to meet the towers. Um, you know, at Vapor, we design, deploy, and operate networks of micro-edge data centers that can then be connected via low-latency fiber runs to those towers to perform the kind of edge-based processing for those network functions and applications that, that you were describing. Well, I'm, I'm the non-4G, uh, 5G wireless guy on the uh, panel. I, I come from the cloud world, and so previous, you know, panels you guys were hearing, I caught the tail end of it, but, um, you know, what I saw in the early 2000s happening in the data center which is when, um, you know, you used to have to go through an IT manager to get access to a computer. 
um, and then put the software on it and whatnot. And in the uh, mid-2000s, the book company kind of lets you use an API and access it and put your own software on it. So we saw kind of direct access of developers putting applications into the data center at their own pace. And what I see happening with the 5G movement around shared infrastructure is that it's this, and I, I think maybe the 5G, 4G thing is actually just a coincidence. It has everything to do with disaggregation of computers from the software that runs the network. It's creating this substrate for a wide number of software developers to actually innovate at their own pace on the software side and not have to be concerned about deploying a fully vertical stack. So from my perspective, this is kind of the cloudification of the wireless network, and that gives a big opportunity for applications, which you know we probably won't create them on this panel, um, but I, I certainly think there'll be more diversity in the application stack due to the 5G infrastructure rollout. So at Digital Bridge, we, we have a little bit different perspective. I think we're really the only platform that has uh, operations and investments across all four verticals, fiber, tower, small cells, and data centers. And within data centers, we serve both hyperscale bank customers as well as uh, enterprise co-location customers. You know, I think with regards to 5G and low latency applications, we are indifferent as to whether the innovation for 5G and low latency applications is driven by the hyperscale OTT companies or in enterprises or governments or our traditional telecom customers. Um, and so we have two decades of experience running mission-critical network infrastructure for a range of companies from uh, AT&T and, and, and Vodafone and SoftBank to uh, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Google. And that gives us a unique perspective on uh, where things are going in the industry. And, uh, you know, we are able to try some stuff as, as a, uh, at least with our, with our private companies uh, and, and, and sort of germinate some stuff. Uh, you know, discreetly um, while, uh, you know, the, these new technology are, are in their infancy. So we have a lot of collaboration between our portfolio companies and there's a lot of interesting stuff and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the panelists about what's going on. Thank you. Uh, Ed, just to expand on what you said, you obviously have the largest portfolio of talents in the U.S. and probably in the world. What does 5G mean for you, both from a technology lens, you know, whether you densification spectrum, but from an overall business perspective, what does it do to your business? And what are the expectations around that? So every G is pretty much started out with a, a, a layer of coverage and then capacity. Those are the two jobs that, that uh, most service providers have to solve, right? So, so 5G and the infrastructure there, you, you need to solve both of those. And the way the industry has um, evolved to 5G, and there's a couple of toes. There's the, there's the broadband sort of high bit rate requirements that, that have talk, been talked about, mission-critical services, and then the IoT densification. So those things all have different needs. And as you look at the networks, uh, part of it comes back to spectrum in some of the earlier discussions. Um, we start out with low band where you can actually take existing spectrum, and, and that's all macro tower, wide area uh, type services. And with DSS, you can start to slowly convert that, those bands to, to 5G. Uh, on the high end, what we've seen in the U.S., uh, and other markets will follow, um, but the millimeter wave spectrum was mostly available first, and so we've seen this hyperdensification, and in some sense, people believe that somehow 5G is just about small cells, and that's not the case. So from an infrastructure standpoint, yeah, you need to have 
that densification and you need to start to figure out how to use that for high capacity and low cost of, of bits because most of that coverage capacity equation for 5G early on before there's developers and applications is about getting lower cost of the network. So lower cost per gigabyte. That's, you have to play that game and, and that's sort of those two pieces are the bookends. And in the middle, where most of the world is operating in 5G is mid-band spectrum. And while we have the CBRS discussion and that has its own set of, of things happening in next year and beyond, but we need to get more uh, TDD, wider bandwidth, mid-band spectrum. And that will be the right balance, particularly for power infrastructure between a knob of, let's say, additional coverage through beamforming and then, you know, ultimately through massive MIMO, I could turn up the capacity. And that's a fundamental phase that we still is ahead of us. So what we've been seeing is slow migration of networks to support and prepare for new radio heads for DSS and low and mid-band, uh, at least some of the mid-band today that's available. I think people have talked about it in public sprint and, and, and their development around 2.5 gigahertz. And in the high-band networks that we talked about earlier with Frank this morning about the densification of those for really high, high bit rate and throughput. So, that's, so from back to what it means is it means a lot more assets in the network, a lot more needs to get fine on-ramps uh, for those assets. And what American Tower is about is shared mutual host efficiencies that come with development of those assets. And so where you get multi-tenancy and you get efficiency from uh, various, uh, whether it's edge data centers or, or towers, that's where we'll deploy capital. So maybe just to play on that last theme um, for Kevin, you know, Digital Bridge is a little bit unique in that you own assets across the entire value chain for most of it, of infrastructure. Um, how do you benefit from that? Or is there any benefit to be able to, to be able to offer the entire suite of infrastructure products? Well, I, I think being able to uh, understand the needs of uh, the ultimately the application companies uh, is really, really critical. I think it's our view that uh, a, a lot of the low latency applications, for, for us, 5G is really about low latency applications. And we're already serving low latency applications with our cloud and enterprise customers in our co-location and, and hyperscale data centers. Uh, in, in, and we're, we're powering, uh, our data centers are powering AI research in, in Santa Clara and in Atlanta. Um, and, uh, you know, for us, that gives us really interesting viewpoint on, you know, as these applications start to become more commercial for enterprises in 5G, we're actually trying to get some of these customers on our mobile networks. And it's, it's at the same time, we're trying to get the big four customers and our, our, our customers in LATAM um, and in Europe onto uh, sort of pushing down developing application. Um, as I said, we don't have to bet on who's going to win. We benefit either way, and we have a new, unique perspective there. So we're spending a lot of time on, on architecting, deploying CRAN, uh, we're doing a lot of indoor uh, DAS and small cells in, in London right now. We, we are the leader in the UK uh, in in-building uh, uh, small cells and DAS systems, not, uh, not talking just stadiums, but actual office buildings. And in Europe, uh, the landlords pay, uh, which is an interesting model. Uh, the carriers don't pay. Landlords pay and pass it on to their customers. So um, we're trying some different things, uh, different models. And, uh, you know, we are, uh, we're able to do that because of our 
uh, exposure to different types of customers. Just to drill in on um, one of the things you just said on on towers, I mean on fiber and small cells. Just elaborate on on the opportunity that you think 5G will bring uh, to those assets specifically in the U.S. Well, look, I, we're extremely positive on small cells now. Uh, we really have hit the inflection point in terms of densification. If you think about the return on capital and uh, you know, some companies have been skeptical about return on capital for small cells. I'll tell you, we're now starting to see orders for two to 3,000 nodes per metro. So you're getting five to 10 nodes per route mile. So you start thinking about the unlevered cash yields that were mid-single digits initially at a single node. They're now getting up into the mid-teens, right? Because your incremental, even, even with a single tenant, we've lowered the cost per node significantly once you have that fiber. And keep in mind now, uh, you know, we will have access to more and more fiber going forward. Uh, that will further lower the cost per node delivered. And so the, the incremental ROIC for small cells for the next five years is going to be higher than it's been for the last five years. Uh, and I think it's a tough business. There are significant barriers to entry. You need to have dense metro fiber uh, in, in most of the NFL market. We're just talking about the U.S., in, in the top 50 markets, uh, or most of them, you need to have uh, uh, entitlements that take a long time, and you need RF engineering capabilities as well to provide a true turnkey solution to your, your customers. And uh, we cannot um, deploy nodes fast enough to keep up with demand from not just the MNOs, uh, but also some additional new entrants, cities, municipalities, public safety, and also some new entrants in the wireless market that I can't talk about, but we're starting to see real, real acceleration of demand. Um, the biggest thing is just getting for us, and I think the industry now, um, balancing hiring uh, more people to accelerate our deployment schedules. I think the industry is probably deploying, uh, I don't know, my guess is 25,000, 30,000 nodes a year. I think there's probably going to be demand when true 5G spending hits, and my guess I'd love to, to get the panel's view on this. You know, true, true. this is sort of pre-5G spending. We think it continues to accelerate in really 21, 22, sort of mainstream 5G spending. And then, um, you know, that's when you're going to see some real real action in, in the small cell space. So uh, we need, to, as an industry, to improve our uh, provisioning capabilities and try to get that up to 50,000, 60,000 nodes a year because that's where demand is going to be within the next two, three years. Ed, back to you. Uh, you have been pretty public about, uh, in the next 10 years, about 20-25% of the revenue comes from new product and services. Can you talk a little bit about what those products and services are? Are they, like, you're talking more small cell edge computing or something beyond that, like drones and things like that? And also, where are you on that journey right now? So, so we're about two years in uh, since I joined. Um, American Tower was looking at uh, how to grow its business outside the core. So the core being macro towers and in-building DAS and those types of products that we've traditionally had, and obviously growing internationally in those same asset bases or asset classes. So what I've, what I've been doing since I've been there is first looking at the portfolio of activity and categorizing it. So there's three work streams. There's the basic traditional connectivity, so it's looking at different types of uh, in-building systems and small cells around the world, um, and that's sort of that stream. And there's also a work stream around new services and applications that can be leveraged on either new assets or existing assets that we have. That would be like data centers, uh, fiber, which we do have in, in certain markets. And the last stream is, is around energy 
and the environment as we look at um, in some markets in let's say India or in Africa we're the primary uh, power provider for the sites. So the fundamental uh, business is really space, power, and potentially transport to get the digital infrastructure to play. And then what you do on top of that really depends on where you are in, in sort of the different, um, let's say, evolutions of, of 3G, 4G, 5G, depending on where we are. So the other parts of the program really, um, and we've, we've done some things recently. We've talked about edge uh, data centers being deployed at our towers. Uh, so that's something we're experimenting with. The fundamental challenge there is the architectures of the mobile networks are not ready to do low latency at those locations. They have to make CRAN, they have to break out the traffic. So you can always hurry up and, and argue that that's there, but it's not. And so now you have to wait till those networks change. So the Rakuten and those types of architectures are really the enablers. You can do it at 4G, you don't have to wait for 5G, but there's a lot of transport network and other investments. So we're studying that. Now we call micro, we call that the micro edge. Um, at the prem edge, on prem edge, we've done a lot of work in CRS. We were the uh, first company to join uh, outside of the founding members of the CBRS alliance. So we're doing a lot of work in building small cells and, and category Wi-Fi. So that's in a growth area. And then we've been um, working in, in in fiber, as I mentioned. We've done some work in, in high capillary dense fiber networks, uh, mostly with partnership with MNOs and other markets around the world bringing fiber to tower and fiber actually passing homes and, 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 uh, and hooking up small cells and other assets to those. So there's a, a whole uh, sort of package of uh, activities. Uh, drones and other types of third parties that want to be in our towers, uh, there's a lot of those uh, verticals that we talk to, and those become an incremental revenue as well. But the primary focus, I'd say, would be in-building systems, looking at uh, ways to do fiber and wireless transport and ultimately uh, uh, data processing assets that support uh, power and, uh, and rack space uh, and on our existing assets like at, at the in-building systems and at the towers. I think this is a good time to uh, drill a bit deeper into the edge data center opportunity. Um, since for Alex, um, I think you know, the industry's been talking about building uh, edge data centers for quite a while. And in, I know Vapor's written a lot about the three acts of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so like, the, big, the big question is, why is now the right time? Right, and, and I think the, the answer I would point to is, is kind of buried within that story of the three acts of the internet, right? So kind of what, what we've been um, talking about at Vapor for a little while is how, how we see the, the evolution of internet architecture over time and why you know, now-ish is about the right time to start doing what we've been doing. Um, so if we think of that, that first act of the internet, um, we're talking like 1970s, 80s, where we've got very, compared to today, very centralized, low-capacity, kind of really low-expectation network, right? This was not really a full, you know, commercial network at its inception. Um, you know, this was organized around uh, comparatively few centralized points to provide, you know, some measure of reroutable redundancy around failures. Um, but as more people started using the internet, especially wanted to use it for, like, multimedia-type applications, um, that single centralized kind of architecture was not scalable to where we needed it to be. So then in the 90s and 2000s, um, we see the emergence of things like CDNs, regional data centers, and infrastructure basically moving out from the centralized point out to a regional kind of basis. So I think we've gone from a centralized internet in the 70s and 80s to a regional internet in the 90s and 2000s. And then basically that same trend is really continuing with 5G, drones, autonomous vehicles, higher data transport costs. Um, more need for content distribution, all these things that drive the need 
for this kind of local tier of internet infrastructure, which is what Vapor is building with the combination of the edge data centers and the network infrastructure to support those, the, 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 both of which we do. Um, so I, I think it's really a combination of making the designs of the actual edge data centers practical, um, which is something that we've spent a lot of time on. Um, I know a lot of edge data center designs are kind of concentrated on, um, you know, moving traditional kind of maybe six watt total, six kilowatt total rack densities out to edge locations and then how to harden each rack individually and make it kind of deployable outdoors. Um, the approach that we've taken is that we're always going to be physically space constrained, space constrained, space constrained in these sites. Um, you know, a typical site of ours is, you know, 10 by 20 feet, um, but we're able to support very dense um, 25 to 35 kilowatt racks in those sites to provide up to 180 kilowatts per site. Um, so that's a big part of it because then, you know, the more capacity and useful computing power you can provide at each site, the more useful that entire distributed network of data centers becomes. Um, the network technology that we use is also, you know, improved to a level where it's practical to provide millisecond level connectivity between all the sites in a city. Because one aspect you have to consider is when you're talking about these, um, you know, much smaller edge data center facilities, you can have the level of on-site redundancy for power and all these other things that you can in, you know, a million square foot tier four data center, right? Um, things the size of a shipping container, right? There's a finite amount of space you can you can put it, you know, things in. Um, you know, you may have access to generators in some places, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a big part of it because the way to provide the kind of high availability that those 5G networks or autonomous vehicles or other applications need is to provide um, essentially a decent level of reliability at each edge data center site, but then provide um, redundant and performant network connectivity between those edge data center sites so that if a problem is detected with you know, power, for example, maybe one site goes on to a UPS and you need to then migrate your workloads to another site to keep the application running. Um, I'd say that's kind of the second part, and I think the third part is really the emergence of the applications like 5G networks, like drones, that are really pushing the need for that kind of local tier of infrastructure. Does that make sense? I have a little bit of a, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, that's a really good kind of education, I think, about kind of some macro trends. One of the things that I'd say is, as Packet, we're a venture-backed company, um, so I don't get the luxury of playing off of discounted cash flows on, you know, 20-year <laughs> leases. Um, I got to figure out a business model in a relatively short period of time. And so when we decided to kind of prosecute the idea that there was going to be compute distributed in lots of places, um, the last place that we decided to look was in carriers, right? Uh, we said, hey, setting our hat on carriers moving fast um, probably is not a good idea. Um, Rearchitecting their networks, taking advantage of new technologies, especially in the concept of a 5G consumer-driven, product-managed wireless network for iPhones, right? Because it's really just how cheap can we get it? Does it make sense? Is it a use case that rivals my existing kind of consumerized plan? We can all talk about a new application, but can I build a business case around it if I'm a carrier? And the answer is almost always no, right? Um, and so they don't wait, 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 wait. It's kind of ironic that our first real edge customer was a carrier, um, which is we built the uh, physical infrastructure for uh, Sprint's Curiosity IoT network, which is not for consumer, it's for enterprise applications. Um, but I think what it points to and what we decided to hang our hat on wasn't the idea that a couple of big operators were going to need a bunch of new um, kind of edge data centers to run a new kind of network on. 
it was that there were going to be a lot more enterprises that looked like highly concentrated carrier-style service provider customers. And we're already seeing that today when you want to talk to a use case like the automobile mobility industry. I don't think anybody out there thinks that that's going to look like today's cloud, which is thousands of SaaS companies running lots of generic applications. You might have a couple of companies doing a lot of autonomy work. I think if you look across what happened, I don't know, is anybody here subscribed to Disney Plus? Probably a few people, right? There's not a lot of streaming companies in the world. There probably will be a few more, but we're not talking like SaaS applications. How many, you know, CRMs are out there? Like a lot, because the barrier to entry is low, it's pretty generic. Um, so when you start looking at these kind of leading edge uh, use cases that dominate big enterprise markets, I think they're naturally very consolidated. And so that's why we focused in on working with edge data centers, not because of a latency discussion or a 5G discussion, but because guys like this understand highly concentrated customers that they can build an economic model around and deploy a significant amount of capital for. So we work with, you know, tower businesses because they understand the customer demographic and we feel more customer demographics are going to look that way. So I think that's why the time is now, not because of the latency aspect of a 5G network. So Jack and Alex, just kind of build on uh, what both of you said, how does it change your overall business model, whether it's 5G, infrastructure on the edge, micro data center? I mean, is it fundamentally changing the way you're looking at the business, the economics behind it for both yeah. of you? Um, so coming from the cloud world, you think of big giant data centers, 150,000 servers a month rolling in on the back of semi-tractors, right? Like, couple of people dominating the supply chain. You think of hyperscale, right? That's the word we use in cloud all the time. I think uh, this model is the opposite, it's subscale. Everything is small, right? And it introduces a totally different customer and buying problem. It also introduces a very, very different economic model because you're no longer counting on 80% bell curve applications that are generically used by most people. So you can put a lot of generic Intel processors in an Ashburn data center and sell it to almost anybody for eight or nine years. That is simply not the model you can pencil out on a highly dense, pretty specialized, very small edge data center footprint for five customers. And so I think the model changes dramatically. Actually, I think that one of the things that our industry is not working on enough is working closer, and I know Ed's background comes from the Silicon world. I think um, the way that the Silicon world monetizes its assets is going to have to change for this model. We're going to have to be in business with our customers in a much more fluid way than let's buy a well-known performing asset that has an eight-year amateurization cycle that's very understood and put it in market and charge people 10 cents an hour for it. We're going to have to do something that's way different. So I suspect that we might be able to learn again from kind of other parts of the stack that have done that before. Well, and also I know a discussion that, that you and I have had in the past is even if we think of um, you know use cases that maybe existing in you know, core or regional facility today that, that may be better suited to operate in edge locations like uh, real-time AI and ML, for example. Um, I know a discussion that you and I have had in the past is that um, even the silicon to support those is a very different maturation cycle than traditional you know, data center resources or you know, traditional Intel x86 processors. I mean, when was the last time you, know, you really needed to upgrade your server's processor specifically because your user base or your application developers were so impressed at, you know, the leap of performance in the next generation of Intel processor. I mean, it's improving, but it's 
not improving up at the level of, you know, say a, a custom designed, um, you know, Tensor Pro, Tensor um, Flow processing unit used for AI and ML. Right. So I think that kind of building on your point, um, from a from a user standpoint, or I suppose of a a standpoint of a kind of edge cloud deployment, mm -hmm. um, the actual hardware that will be deployed, and then the business model that's built on top of that becomes much more bespoke um, than it is today. Yeah, I think the business model will evolve too from you know long duration. Um, you know, rent per site to a bandwidth on demand model where you'll bundle in, uh, you know, you'll provide on demand service to new entrants, whether it's enterprise or smart cities, and where they're not paying a fixed charge necessarily for the infrastructure. So I think that's a long way out, but I think that's for the new entrants in the space. So it'll be incremental revenue. I don't think the carriers will necessarily evolve off that model, but I do see new players utilizing. CRAN networks for edge compute that are, are not necessarily paying on a per node basis. Um, so, so I think that's, that's, go ahead. No, I agree with that. I'm going to tie back together some, something Zach said earlier and, and, and what uh, Alex was saying is that the edge is a different beast, right, at some level, right? So we, we focus a lot here in 5G on the wireless on ramp. And I think that's fair, but it's going to take some time to get there. And it's back to what we were talking earlier, what's a millisecond worth? And what applications and, and services will really demand that? Because that's the wireless on-ramp being processed at the application level as quickly to where, you know, as quick as possible to where the data is residing and the compute is available. Then there's this resiliency model of creating a distributed view of the cloud at the edge of networks. And we just happen to, in, in purposes of being in the real estate business and managing towers, is we have a lot of those properties available, 41,000 of them. So then the question is, once we start placing those assets today at whatever level of kilowatt capabilities is available to go fast, which we can do, we can do it at low cost, then Zach can find applications and verticals that want to use those facilities today, independent of the wireless on-ramp. So it's just a matter of tying those pieces together with some of the technology Vapor has in terms of management, orchestration, and resiliency. But those are things that are coming together today. But we also believe that the real explosion of that happens once the networks become 5G enabled and the wireless on ramp with low latency and 5G really kicks in. Now, I think a lot of that does tie back to having wide area 5G mid-band spectrum but also some of the DSS activity that's going to happen in 2020 and beyond. So we're still a few years away from that wireless on-ramp, but the wireline business as it exists today can leverage these assets. And that's what we've been experimenting with. We place these things, we're learning. We've had what we call micro-edge and these metro-edge where we have this Colo Atlanta, which is really a telco, but it helps set the table for the northbound interface mm -hmm. to that legacy internet, which used to be more regional and centralized. It's funny, when we, when we build for Sprint, we actually build for the wireline group, yeah. right? And it's their wireless product for their wireline customers. So I agree the way it's being built is very typical to how a wireline yeah. is. I was about to ask you that how much of it is B2C versus B2B in terms of how the market has quickly evolved in context of 5G? Uh, it's almost exclusively what I would call B2B and B2C, right? So it's business to developer. So it's new applications drawing it in, and it's enterprises saying, I want these things in these places. Please make it happen. And I think this is the big shift that, that we in our industry are going to have to get. We meaning cloud companies. Cloud and data center, enterprise data center businesses basically put in servers once and then expect them to live there forever and die. 
We don't care, right? When we're talking about how we work with, say, American Tower, we have to train and work together with a distribution model that's way more efficient. It's extremely expensive to put five servers into a market. I mean, it's almost impossible, I would say. If you try to put five or ten servers, you're Disney Plus, and you want to put two racks of equipment in every peering location on the Internet, 60 locations, it will take you three years. And that's if you have unlimited money, right? Um, that's going into normal centralized data centers with lots of effort um, because the whole supply chain is built for hyperscale where everybody does everything in quantities of 20,000 servers and above. And so we can take the learnings from truck rolls and field distribution and logistics and apply that to kind of a much more um, distributed use case and make a very efficient delivery model. We estimated our cost within packet to deliver less than um, 20 servers per location costs us upwards of um, $1,000 in shipping and labor charges per server, right? So if you're talking about a $8,000 commodity server, you know, 15% of it is just in the distribution. And we do it very efficiently. You go to a carrier or an enterprise, it's way more expensive. They do this highly irregularly, not very often. Um, they're trying to get a server into Baltimore. I mean, probably cost them almost as much as the server just to put it into market. So I think there's big efficiencies that the fixed investments that uh, this industry has in the shared infrastructure and the movement of that product can come to bear on the, uh, on the enterprise IT side. The only thing I want to highlight, though, is, is I agree that the real demand is two to three years out for, for Edge. I think right now we're, uh, I think everyone is dipping their toes in. We're, we're building as much uh, bandwidth out to the edge of our networks, expanding our fiber networks into the yeah. suburbs to where the enterprises are. A um, lot more act activity now in the suburbs. In the last decade, it's been either dense metro or um, for fiber and, and data centers or these uh, low-cost low power rural uh, hyperscale facilities. Yeah. Now you're seeing a lot of, of activity in the suburbs. So I think, um, you know, we see uh, putting in a lot of CRAN right now as much as we can and prepping our small cells and our tower sites to be ready for this. But we're not seeing material revenue today and we won't see it in, in our models in, until the end of 21 at the earliest. So the whole infrastructure thing it takes a long time, right? And I think where, where it's fascinating is this is like why this industry has to work together on it and where I think we have some really good principles on it is that like, we got to learn how to do it together. And the, the application just doesn't show up in 2022 and we all go, ta-da, right? We have to learn companies that we see putting budget towards this, they're putting $50 million into an innovation program around how they're going to deploy an application in 2025. Mm -hmm. But they're putting that in now and they need partners to work with. They have to do trials. They have to see what it's going to cost them. They have to see what's possible. Those are the early stages that are, it's real dollars, right? Luckily, it's new dollars too because it's not carrier dollars off of a consumer network saying, please make it cheaper. Mm -hmm. There's an enterprise that says, I don't do any of this whole wireless thing, um, but I know that that's part of my future and I want to put this app in places. Maybe, could you help me? Um, and so they're willing to experiment and invest along that process now, but it's not, you know, it hasn't reached the one of the One of the points is a lot of the, the current data center strategies are centralized, in these, whether it's the hyperscale or the metro, and you have, you know, people occupying those facilities. Hmm. And when you start talking about thousands of, whether it's these CRAN hubs or whether it's edge data centers, how are you going to manage those facilities, whether it's the delivery, as uh, Zach just talked about, but the remote hands and the ability to 
keep those when something happens. Now, obviously, there's a lot of resiliency and network software we can build in to work around near-term things, but you still have that. So one of the things as a tower company that we believe, and this is about global too, not just U.S. for us, is that we have those resources on the ground. We touch these things on a regular basis, and we can be, uh, you know, that's an, a, another advantage of leveraging from an innovation perspective our core competencies. So uh, it seems like 2019 was the big year of trials and experimentation around uh, the data centers at the edge. Uh, one thing that you know, I think a lot of people in this room are struggling with is trying to figure out what the actual addressable market is. Um, and that's a hard question to answer, but what are your blue sky scenarios for you know, how big could this get? And as a follow-up, I want to ask the same question uh, to Kevin and Ed about the CBRS opportunity that you mentioned earlier. You want me to mark yeah, you guys, you guys should do that. <laughs> Um, I'm going to do a roundabout. So you know. say it's a consulting business case. Sure. We at BCG, no we have to do a market sizing. Okay, you guys do a market sizing. <laughs> we'll sell the report. Okay. Um, let, let me explain my thought process around that this way. Um, I effectively think that uh, the vast majority of enterprises and companies in the world um, don't want to be in the technology business. They just want to consume technology. And so we feel that the SMEs um, basically just consume Office 365 and get out of the whole business of buying technology. They just want to consume it. Um, we think that the hyperscalers have invested massively, become their own technology suppliers. They are their own operators. They're, in many cases, they're their own suppliers. They're their own innovation side as well. Um, and then there's this kind of weird middle ground. And to use the... Uh, Banking analogy, I call this the wealth management of infrastructure, which is a couple thousand, you know, rich people in the room who spend a few billion a year, which makes them really small compared to Google, but really big compared to the SME who doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And so our thought process is that current customer, some of which exist today, they're well known, they're large technology-based businesses, or they're just large businesses that spend a lot on technology, the way you want to look at it. And some of those don't exist today. It's always hard in the wealth management business to figure out who the rich, rich person is in five, ten years. Um, but we feel that that relationship of a uh, kind of large-scale technology-based enterprise who's either owning their market or delivering their value on a substrate of digital infrastructure uh, is, is the market to win. Right? And those include mobile carriers, and those include streaming companies, and those include automotive, and those include healthcare companies, all kinds of other stuff, right? What we believe is that those companies, by the time this infrastructure could possibly get built, are all going to be run by millennials. It's 2020 almost, right? So millennials are 39 years old. Um, I am slightly above that. But uh, they are going to inherit the budget. In, in five, six years, they're running the basically CIO's budget at most companies, um, and they want things operated for them. Like and share. <laughs> they like to share. They don't want to own. They don't want to have it. They just want to use it, and they want it to go pretty seamlessly. And so I'd like to think, and this is my market sizing, I believe that this is the very first phase of a way to deliver a highly bespoke shared infrastructure product for essentially the largest companies, largest few thousand enterprises globally. So I think this potentially replaces or augments the entire OEM model we have today which is all about shipping boxes to people who have to do it themselves, driving the pickup truck at the data center and rack your servers, talk about how you can punch down the things. I think that goes away. 
So Dell, Cisco, HP, Lenovo, et cetera, I think are at risk for an operative model. Um, I think uh, you know, you've got a lot of that value chain sitting in the middle that will end up being as a delivered service. So a couple hundred billion per year is my assumption. <laughs> you can build that model out. That's not the edge data center. That's the delivering the operator. People actually don't want to buy edge data center. They want to buy edge cloud. They want to buy edge things. In the hybrid world. They just want it to work. Nobody's going to go visit the data center and look at the UPS generator. Right? They just want it to work. So I think you know you have to kind of work through that whole continuum where that divvies up and who takes which pie. I'm not really sure. Yeah, great. And, uh, I, yeah, and so I, I pretty much agree with Zach's point on that. Um, we've actually been doing a lot of um, you know in-depth kind of original research on on market sizing and, and you know spend trends and things like that, um, which is actually going to be released um, in a free report in about a month or so um, called the State of the Edge Report 2019. Um, and I've also worked on it with um, some of Zach's team as well. So that would be the, the place I would refer anyone to for uh, some some actual better in-depth analysis on that question that I can I can give you myself on the on, on the stage today. Great, and, and maybe uh, if you guys could talk about the CBRS opportunity. Sure. So I, mean, I guess State of the Edge is a report that talks about where applications would be processed, and part of that edge to me is is on-prem. And so, if you look at uh, on the device too, is the ultimate extreme. If you want to do some filtering and some inferencing. It, it can happen, but that costs you more money per, per device as an IoT. So you move it and say, in this hotel, why wouldn't I have a smart hotel where everything's a sensor and whether it's unlicensed or licensed in the case of, say, CBRS and private LTE today moving to 5G, I can bring all that um, through access points and infrastructure to an equipment room in this facility and process that at the edge. And CBRS is, is a spectrum band that's shared with the Navy. Um, as a starting point, has unlicensed and will have power license coming in June. And that combination of 150 megahertz is in the sweet spot of where the world's going 5G. So you have a tremendous amount of ecosystem, you know, on silicon, on RF, on uh, base stations, on devices. That enables that to be a, a really interesting place to be. And when I'm in this hotel, there's a lot more rights and things you can do because coming from the outside in is a harder uh, scenario given the propagation millimeter wave. It's really impossible. You want to be in the, this, this facility. But at mid-band, I think there's an opportunity primarily in the U.S., but we're starting to see that same model. Uh, there's location-based spectrum in Germany. There's other folks that can act as anchor pieces of spectrum that can bundle with unlicensed in, in what would be considered be carrier ag or LAA. So those types of networks can be built as private networks and provide significant value for enterprises doing uh, digital transformation. And, and then that sensor data processing at the edge may not be on-prem, it could be, but for security and other shared network reasons, it's likely, as the Sprint IoT would say, put it in the near-prem and let's aggregate that, it's more efficient. So that's where, and CBS can have other applications if you want to think about uh, higher power and you can talk about um, uh, rural and other types of ISPs or wireless ISPs trying to pursue that for uh, just, better, uh, just general purpose broadband uh, access. So as I mentioned earlier, we, we do indoor uh, small cells and DAS in, in the London and throughout the UK. Uh, we also do uh, indoor DAS here in the US. We've got AT&T Stadium. We've got uh, MSG uh, here in New York. Uh, so we have a lot of experience. And for us, CBRS is really the catalyst for uh, indoor in, in, in the US market. And uh, this is the fastest growing segment of our businesses globally. Uh, we get the most inbound uh, interest from both the carriers and enterprise customers. 
We, we talked, we touched a lot of these, we have building access agreements uh, through our various fiber networks and we have the expertise. We also have the RF and this is really the vision uh, for, for us and for Convergence. On one hand, you've got uh, the distributed edge computing. On the other hand, you've got uh, these indoor uh, networks and we're, uh, we're, we're really very bullish on CBRS and, and uh, we see a lot of demand, but also in, in, in Europe uh, with indoor and in Canada, uh, where we're starting to see a lot of uh, demand for indoor. In some ways, because of the landlord pays model, those markets are actually ahead of ours uh, in indoor because uh, the carriers, it's, it's very, very expensive for the carriers to, to, to get and negotiate. They're not really set up to negotiate with large uh, building managers and, and estate owners here in the U.S., uh, whereas uh, you can deal with those companies directly in London and in Canada, uh, and it's, it's better. Great, and um, I think we only have time for probably just one more question. I'm going to direct it to Kevin again. Now, since you've got this uh, wide view of, of infrastructure, talk about where you're seeing the best value and opportunities today in the market. And then also, you know, you were recently acquired by Colony Capital. Um, and you know, if you could just talk about how your investment strategy will likely change when you sort of move into that role, uh, that'd be great. Well, let me answer the first part of your question. The second one's a little more complicated because uh, we're in the quiet period. Uh, but uh, just quickly on Digital Bridge is now wholly owned subsidiary of Colony Capital, which is a publicly listed company. Uh, we are uh, uh, going to be unveiling our digital strategy uh, by the end of the year. So I urge you uh, to listen in to the webcast or attend uh, any presentation and feel free to reach out if you have more interest on that. Uh, as regards to where we see real opportunities now, I think it's where we have, uh, I would say emerging markets is, is probably been out of favor relative to the US and Europe. There's been a preponderance of low cost capital uh, that has come in in terms of uh, infrastructure funds and, and, uh, and pension and sovereign wealth funds that have propped up values, particularly in Europe. Uh, and here in North America, building towers, et cetera. A lot of new entrants, and it's driven up valuations. So we're actually building more towers and more hyperscale data center capacity than we ever have. We think it's the time to build, uh, not buy, uh, but we do see also some activity, uh, better values in emerging markets, uh, I think, uh, around the world. And, um, you know, there's usually in emerging markets we're competing against American and, and, and SBA and, uh, uh, you know, a couple other players in Asia, but it's very different than competing against private equity sponsors who really don't know, uh, or, or even worse, people of low-cost capital who don't really understand the business. Um, so we find emerging markets actually, in some ways, a lot more rational. You have different risks, obviously, but uh, we really like uh, the growth opportunities there. Great. Thanks, Thanks, all. Uh, thanks all for joining. We're going to take a quick coffee break. And we can do